welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. The Latin phrase, Libra Pondo, translates to the weight measured in the balance. The Libra part is where the LB abbreviation for pounds comes from. Our word pound comes from the Pondo part. Eric Ryan, Executive Director of Shepherding and Spiritual Growth, continues the series Chasing Truth with this sermon entitled The Cost of Discipleship which covers Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. This is Eric Ryan, kind of weird. I'm not used to looking up to people when I'm on stage, but uh, Eric is such a blessing to us. He's been back with us since December, serving on our executive leadership team. He's the executive director of Shepherding and Spiritual Development and he's doing an amazing job. And I say back with us because he was with us on staff at Perimeter for nine years, 14 summers as he served on staff uh, with camp and volunteered for a few years before he came on staff. Then went three years down to Tallahassee uh, with his wife Jules and their seven kids. And uh, God brought them back. I heard several whispers, seven. Um, uh, It's true, but it's awesome. Uh, But then God brought him back to us this past December, and I am thrilled, absolutely thrilled uh, for you to open God's word with us, and you're going to be blessed. It was a tremendous teaching of God's word in the nine o'clock service. So let me pray for Eric as as, uh, we prepare our hearts to hear God's word. Father, thank you. Thank you for this brother as well. And pray, oh Father, that you would bless him, anoint him, fill him with your Holy Spirit. May your word go forth and do its work among us through this man. We pray for your glory in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Jeff. Well, it is not lost on me uh, that I am preaching in a series called Chasing Truth in the church uh, that by and large has taught me the most about chasing truth. Uh, And so it is a deep honor to be here and to be preaching the word this morning. Uh, And we're in a series uh, that we've alluded to a couple times already uh, called Chasing Truth. And the idea is that for us as believers, right, that we worship the word made flesh, Jesus, right, and he has given us the word inscribed, the word of God, and in pursuing that word, we pursue him, and at times, that word begins to unfold itself more and more into our lives. Sometimes we'll come upon a passage with every passage having an interpretation, right, but multiple applications, and God a lot of times will reveal that interpretation to us, but over time, will massage that interpretation more and more into our hearts. And so there's gonna be several of us in the next few weeks coming and sharing about particular passages uh, that God has done that in our lives uh, with and using. Uh, This morning, we'll be in Luke 14, uh, beginning in verse 25. And this is a passage for me that uh, God, really beginning in college, as I'll share as we even kind of unpack the passage more and more. Uh, This is a passage that for me, God continues to bring me back to. And you will see that this is not a passage that is light and easy, but as we unpack it more and more, I think you will see the goodness of the gospel and the goodness of who Jesus is as we dive more and more into this passage. Before I read God's word this morning, let me pray for us. Jesus, we're incredibly grateful. Lord, we are incredibly grateful that you did not just leave us, but you sent your spirit Spirit, we are grateful that you take your word and you illumine our hearts and you help us to see more and more of who you are 
Lord, you help us to see more and more of our need for you. Lord, oftentimes you use your word to encourage us, to strengthen us. You use your word to give us clarity. Lord, you use your word uh, to help us to grow and to become more and more like you. Jesus, you remember the day that you spoke these words to the people that were following you. Lord, you know that they are not light and easy words, but they are good and they are true. And so Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning to sit in your word, spirit, that you would not allow us to leave unchanged. We love you. Uh, We thank you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Luke 14, beginning in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, his wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? And otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Luke informs us here in chapter 14 that after miracles and after teaching, the large crowds begin to accompany Jesus. And Jesus doesn't respond the way that we would in our modern times, right? When large crowds begin to accompany, right? We start to do research. We start to think through leadership principles. We start to think through ways and strategic ways to lead them and to stir up even more and more of a following. Yet Jesus turns to this large crowd and he says, if you do not hate your mother and your father, your wife and your children, your brothers and your sisters, yes, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. He goes on to say, if, if you will not bear your own cross, you cannot be my disciple. The Romans a lot of times would leave criminals on crosses on the streets throughout the day so that when people would walk by, they would remember who's in charge. So we don't know it specifically from this text, but there's a chance that even as he is saying this, there is a cross in view with a criminal hanging on it. And Jesus turns to them and he says, if you are not willing to bear your own cross, you cannot be my disciple." There's really two categories here that Jesus is challenging us to count the cost. Now we gotta remember the gospel, right? We gotta read scripture in light of the rest of scripture. Salvation is free. But Jesus is alluding to here is the fact that following Jesus, being obedient to the mission that he has called us to, 
could cost us everything. And so he challenges the people to count the cost in two primary categories. First, he challenges them to think through how they are prioritizing their relationships. But he looks at them and he lists every relationship that's in somebody's life that's probably their closest relationship, right? Your wife, your children, your mother, your father, your brothers, your sisters, even your own life. But again, we study scripture in light of the rest of scripture and this is the same Jesus that the two greatest commandments he gives us are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So what's he saying here? Jesus is using comparative language. He's saying, look, if this is how you would treat somebody that you hate, and this is how you would treat the people closest to you, then take that distance between the differences of how you would act in those two groups and add it on top of the group that you love the most. And this is what would be necessary for you to follow me. Right, it's comparative. It's saying, look, there's a difference between how we love the people in that list and how we would treat people that we're struggling to love, the people that we would hate. Take that distance and add it on top. He leaves us with a question. What is the difference between how we act and how we live around those people that are closest to us and how we act and how we live with Jesus? If you're a parent in this room, would your children acknowledge that Jesus has a higher priority in your life than even they do? Would your spouse acknowledge that Jesus has the higher priority in your life than even they do? The second area is obviously with our own selves. He's calling us to live a life of self-sacrifice to be willing in order to follow Jesus, one has to say everything that I am and everything that I have, Jesus belongs to you. My life is not my own. Paul in Romans six would say that we were slaves to righteousness, but, or sorry, we were slaves to our sin, but when God saved us, we became slaves to righteousness. Still slaves that we worship a king, Diedrich Bonhoeffer said that the call to follow Jesus is the call to come and die. Jesus in Luke chapter nine said that if you're gonna follow after me, you must take up your cross daily and come after me. The call in Luke 14 is that we would wake up every single day and say, Jesus, everything I am and everything I have is yours. What I wanna do as we kind of unpack this passage a little bit more is just walk you through a little bit of my story and, and how over time I feel like God has revealed more and more of the application and the interpretation of this passage. When Jesus is saying count the cost here, if you were to Google weighing the cost in ancient Rome, or you were to Google counting the cost in ancient Rome, you would get a picture of a scale, right? A scale like you would see Lady Justice would hold, right? It's the scale with the plate 
and the string, the, the, the wire that attaches it to the bar, and then there's another plate on the other side, right? And it's a scale that they used to use to weigh cost. And value was different in ancient Rome, and so oftentimes you would weigh the cost of something and you would literally put it on the scale, and then the price of something you would put on the other side and they would try to weigh them out. Jesus here is not relieving the pressure. And he's not relieving the pressure because he's not telling us about the other side of the scale. He's showing us this side. And he's reminding the people that are following him and are excited about his miracles and are excited about his teaching. He's saying, look, it's gonna cost you everything. Your closest relationships, your very life, why would you go to war and not first think about if you've got a chance to win? Why would you build a tower and not at first think about if you're gonna be able to finish that tower or if you're gonna have to stop halfway? And he just leaves it there. The first time I came across this passage and, and was kind of forced to look at it deeply was in college. And I was working at another overnight camp up in Pennsylvania and we were sitting around, just the male staff was sitting around and we were being led and being taught and having grown up in suburban Christianity, right? Having grown up in an area that was pretty safe where, where not only when I would follow Jesus, not only was I safe and not put in harm's way, but when I would follow Jesus, I would get rewarded. Right, following Jesus for me growing up, it meant pats on the back. It meant success at home and in school. It meant people acknowledging that and saying, good job, keep it up, keep following Jesus. And I remember being at this camp and it was kind of the first time I was in a really uncomfortable space. And the leader takes us to this passage and he, he reminds us of the call of Christ. And it was the first time Jesus made me kind of look at what would have to go on that side of the scale. Salvation is free, grace is free. Following Jesus might cost us everything. And there was a, a chant that the leader gave us. It's a chant because it was guys. We don't call it a cheer at that point. That's how creative we get uh, when we're by ourselves. Right, and the cheer went like this, the chant, I'm sorry, I just did my own mistake there, it's a chant. It went like this, the leader would say the cross is rough and we would say get tough. And the leader would say the cross is rough and we'd say get tough, pick it up. And at first I remember going, guys, we have crossed an all time low in Christianity, uh, turning this into a cheer. But over time, when camp got hard, when campers got hard, when you'd roll out of bed and you're going, I don't know that I wanna do another day here at camp, having this as a resource was helpful. The cross is rough, get tough. The cross is rough, get tough, pick it up. It was a reminder that Jesus was gonna call me into spaces where I would be called to take my comfort, to take my means, to take my energy, to take my effort, to take my time and to crucify them because the cross is rough. The second time I took a deeper look was when I graduated from college and began to teach in various contexts at camp and here at the church as well. 
And so I would go back and begin to study. And again, I was, I was encouraged in that time in college. I was reminded that it takes grit. I was reminded that it takes effort to follow Jesus. And so I wanted to share that. And as I dove deeper, I was looking at the passage and because of the way it was taught at the first context, I, I hadn't looked at the fact that it just rolls, Luke just rolls us right in to the salt without taste passage. Did you catch how this conversation ends? Jesus says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile, it's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the second thing that God began to unravel was this. My witness and impact is directly proportional to my willingness to regularly count the cost. My witness and impact is directly proportional to my willingness to be able to count the cost. What's at stake for the believer? What's at stake for the believer who's not sat under this passage and not acknowledged that Jesus said, if you wanna follow me, here's where your relationships have to land. If you wanna follow me, you're gonna to have to deny yourself and take up your cross every day. What's at stake is our saltiness. What's at stake is our witness. We've all met them, haven't we? We've all met the believer where there is just something that tastes different about them. Maybe you were on a short-term mission trip and you went to a country where sharing the gospel is illegal and comes with risk. Or maybe you've just met somebody, but their, their desire to follow Jesus caused them to have to sacrifice time and time again, and there's a sweetness to them. There's a saltiness to them. There's something that when you interact with them, it's different. They've, they've in their life have gone everything I am and everything I have, and they've taken that and they've put it on the side of the scale for cost. And when we interact with them, we walk out of the room and we go, man, what was that? What's at stake for the believer is our saltiness. But how do we balance this? Right, how do I not lose sight that the gospel is by grace? How do I not lose sight that there's nothing I've done to earn my salvation? Why would Jesus say I can't be his disciple if I don't take up his cross and yet I cannot save myself? Well, I believe this call from Christ is a call to a particular posture. If you grew up playing basketball, then you know what I mean when I say the triple threat position. Right, from kindergarten on, it was like the second you got this basketball and you're just excited to shoot it, the coaches are like, nope, nope, you gotta stop, you gotta hold it, you gotta be in the right position, you gotta be able to pass, dribble, or shoot. Right, and they would rub that in again and again. Why? Because they wanted you, every time you caught the ball, to be ready. I think counting the cost for the believer is a position. It's a position of the heart that we daily have to put ourselves in. Right, if you've been around perimeter a long time, then you know KCB, KCP, know, consider, present. Right, how do we appropriate the power of the spirit? We do it by presenting ourselves to the Lord. 
everything I am and everything I have. It's a posture. God, through means, may be blessing your socks off right now. But what is the posture of your heart? Do you recognize that the call to follow Jesus could cost you everything? The third time God took me into a deeper look in this passage was when I was asked to preach it down in Tallahassee at the church I was at before this. At the third and deeper look, this is what I felt like the Lord was showing me, that this passage speaks heavily about the cost to follow Jesus, but the rest of scripture speaks heavily to what is gained. Jesus, by nature of what's going on around him, right? He sees these crowds, these crowds that are drawn to him because of the miracles and because of the teaching. And he turns to them, right? He turns to them and he says, you've got to count the cost. You've got to be willing to take up your cross. And he leaves it there. He looks, in other words, he looks at the one side of the scale and he just reminds the people of this side of the scale because at that time, that's what they needed. But the more I began to teach in various contexts this passage, I would teach this side of the scale and I would walk away a bit frustrated because I was learning in my life that I did not possess the grit or the courage to do this faithfully. That in particular contexts where God had called me particularly to tough situations in order to obey him, I began to realize more and more, I don't have what it takes. And I'd wake up and go, the cross is rough, get tough. And I would get tired. And that third time I took a deeper look, I began to read the passage in light of the rest of scripture. And the rest of scripture speaks over and over and over again to what's on this side of the scale. Paul alludes to it in Philippians chapter three, where he has listed all of his accolades. And he says this beginning in verse seven, he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might be gain Christ and be found in him. Did you notice the similar language? I've counted it all as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Everything else is rubbish. So Paul is literally looking at what's on this side of the scale. He's looking at all his accomplishments, everything he has on his name, and he's looking at it, his very life. And he's saying it's rubbish. And the Greek there is a pretty strong word for rubbish. It's rubbish. And what does he put on this side? Does he put morality? Does he put community? Does he put church programs or church experiences? No. He puts knowing Christ. 
For the Christian, when we grow weary of saying everything I am and everything I have and putting that on this side of the scale, we have to look to the other side. We have to look at the return. We have to look at what's gained. We all know when we're weighing the cost of something, you can't just look at the cost and leave it. You have to take that cost and you have to weigh it. And you weigh it against what is gained. And Paul says, this is what is gained to know Christ. John Owen in his book called The Glory of Christ begins to talk about Moses and he begins to ask this question. Moses at one point in his life had been rescued as a baby. He had seen the burning bush. He had been called to Egypt. He had seen the plagues. And after rescuing this people of Israel, he had gotten to the Red Sea and he had seen this miraculous rescue of God, of his people. He had seen him slaughter the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. He saw him take bitter water and turn it to clean water. And then he saw him present the law and still Moses goes to God on top of the mountain and he says, show me your glory. John asks why, why would he do this? He answers this way. He knew that the ultimate rest, blessing and satisfaction of the soul is not in seeing the works of God, but the glory of God himself. As a Christian, if I'm trying to put everything I am and everything I have on this side of the scale and all I have on this side is the works of God. All I have on this side is the miraculous. All I have on this side is good teaching and morality. I will not make it. On this side of the scale has to be the glory of Christ. It has to be him himself, the good news of Christianity, even beyond salvation, is Jesus. Jesus is that good news, and on this side of the scale has to be knowing him. Yes, all of those works we will experience as we know him, but there is something good about him. There is something glorious about him that we only get to see when we behold him. This is why we're doing a series, Chasing the Truth, because we chase the truth to behold his glory. We chase the truth so we can sit in his presence and enjoy his presence. We chase the truth so that he can strengthen us. We chase the truth so that we can go to this side of the scale, everything I am and everything I have day after day, and it can give us endurance and strength for what lies ahead. So that every time God puts a cross before us and we're called to take up our cross, we pause and we look at him and we behold his glory and it gives us strength. The fourth time I took a deep dive into this passage was to prepare for this sermon. And the more I began to wrestle with this passage and begin to study it more, I came away with this. The call to take up my cross is not as much a call to serve him as it is a call to join him. 
when we're looking at that scale, when we're feeling called to give God everything we are and everything we have, and we are growing weary in it. And when we feel the pressure, because we know if we don't do this side, we lose our saltiness, but we're still growing weary. When we start to look at him and behold him, what we start to see over here is a Jesus who was also crucified. We see a king who suffered. We see a God who set everything aside to come after us. And we start to recognize the call to leave everything I am and everything I have and to wait against knowing him. The call is not just to serve him. There is an element in there, but the call is to join him. How often have we prayed in our life, Jesus, would you make me more like you? How often would we prayed in our life, Lord, would you help me to be on mission like you? Lord, would you make me a leader like you? Would you make me a friend like you? Would you help me to love my neighbor like you? Would you help me to love the Lord my God like you? And we don't recognize that that call, that prayer to join him, we are joining the lamb who was slain. Recently, I've been reading a book called Discipleship on the Edge, and it's an expository writing of Revelation by Dale Johnson. And in Revelation chapter five, really it's chapter four and five, we see Christ sitting on his throne. And we, in chapter five, we see as an angel with a loud voice cries out over all the universe, who is worthy to take the scroll and to open it? And John, who is seeing this vision, he begins to weep. He begins to cry because he realizes there's no one. There's no one throughout all of history and in all the universe who is worthy to take the scroll and to open it. And one of the elders comes up to him and he says, do not weep. He says, but look. Look, by the way, is the number one verb used in the book of Revelation. Look, behold. He says, look, the lion of Judah, the root of Jesse, he is worthy to open the scroll. And John goes and he turns and what would you expect him to see? A lion. But he turns and he sees a lamb that looks as if it had been slain. And all around the throne, they begin to sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Dale says this and describes it this way. It says, John then turns expecting to see a huge roaring lion. He turns and he sees a lamb, a little lamb, as if it's slain. The lion can open the scroll because he became a lamb. The lamb can open the scroll because he was slain, because he gives his life and sacrificial love for his enemies. Jesus Christ is the only person in the whole universe who can open the scroll and break its seals because he has taken on the sin of the universe and suffered sin's consequences. He is worthy not because he created the universe. He is worthy not because he rose from the dead. He is worthy 
because he was slain. Daryl's saying here, look, yes, he's worthy because he rose from the dead, but here that's not what they're declaring. When John looks, the first thing on their mind was not the resurrection. It was not that he was creator of the universe. The first thing on their mind is worthy who was the lamb who was slain. For us to be able to take up our cross, we have to recognize that the economy of God is not that I would have ease and comfort and success and that would lead me to the top. The economy of God says that I would humble myself. I would lay down my life. I would constantly have open hands that says everything I am and everything I have. And that is where the glory is found. Jesus, ruler and sustainer of the universe is worshiped because he was the lamb who was slain. When Jesus calls me to hard things, and in those moments where I don't want to give up the thing he is asking me to give up, I don't wanna set aside my preferences. In those moments, I have to look and I have to see his glory. I have to behold him. I have to see who he is. And I have to recognize that he is not just asking me to come serve with him. He's asking me to join him. Many of us in this room, there is nothing that we desire more than intimacy with Christ to know him on the deepest level possible. And the fastest way to know him is to join him in his suffering. This is why Paul can charge us to rejoice in our suffering, to rejoice in our trials. Why? Because trials builds in me the thing I long for the most, to know him. Those moments where we are asked to set aside our own desires, our own preferences, the, moment, the, world, the moments that the world comes against us, those are moments that we are invited into his presence to share with him in his suffering. And we rejoice. Just this week, as I was sitting on this some more, I came across a song that I love called Christ is Mine Forevermore. And there's a bridge in this song that says, come rejoice now, O my soul, for his love is my reward. Fear is gone and hope is sure. Christ is mine forevermore. As I was listening to that song, I began to think back to those college years. Right, those college years where for, for me at that time, this idea of grit for the sake of Jesus and courage for the sake of Jesus, right? It stirs something in my heart. And then somebody gives me this chant, this, this thing of cross is rough, get tough. The cross is rough, get tough, pick it up. And it fed everything in my heart. And again, there is a reality at which we have to recognize it's everything I am and everything I have on that side of the scale. I have to experience that. I have to to know that, but there will come a time where you don't have what it takes to put everything on that side of the scale. The cross is rough, get tough will not be enough to motivate you to take up your cross. What would we as a church look like if instead of the cross is rough, get tough, 
we look to this other side and we say, Christ is mine forevermore. It's everything I am and it's everything I have for everything he is and everything he has. I give my fine, finite, broken life for eternal life. I give purposeless life for purpose. I get called in as an adopted son of the living God, co-heir to the throne of Christ. My inheritance is immeasurable in the Lord. I get to sit in his presence and experience his glory through the means of grace of his word and prayer and commune with the saints and the sacraments and I get to walk through life with him. And as we look more and more at this, this becomes lighter and lighter. Everything I am and everything I have, you can have it, Lord, because Christ is mine forevermore. And in those moments where he calls us to step out into sacrifice, we have to be able to look at him. We have to be able to say, Christ is mine forevermore. We cannot be his disciples if we don't see him for who he is and are able to weigh that cost appropriately. The cross is rough, get tough, will only get you so far. But Christ is mine forevermore will sustain you forever. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so grateful, Lord, that you didn't let us settle for your works of miracles and teaching, but you called us to count the cost. Lord, you called us to count the cost because you knew it was necessary to see the value of who you are, to see the value of knowing you, so Lord, we echo what Paul said. Lord, we believe in all of our hearts that everything is rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing you as our Lord. So Lord, we sing that. We sing that, Lord, as a response to your word this morning. We sing with all of our hearts that Christ is mine forevermore. May it glorify you. We love you. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Would you join us and stand as we continue to worship our great God? You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.